0: Hi, my name is Kaz Kazanoff. I am a saxophone player, harmonica player, singer, producer, arranger, and blues guy. And this is an interview with Talking Blues, and I'm very excited to be here.
1: So I am fascinated by how you got into music, and your mom had something to do with this.
0: She did. um, When I was a a pretty small child, um, a young child, she uh, was actually a student at Bennington College, and uh, my father was teaching there, so she had never completed her Uh, undergraduate studies, so she chose to do it there while my father was teaching there, and she actually got a job uh, working for, I believe he was her English teacher, Stanley Edgar Hyman, a well-known writer and poet and uh, critic, uh, but also um, an astounding record collector, Uh, and I do mean astounding. he and his wife lived in a in a large ramshackle uh vermont house and every wall of the house was covered with records every wall floor to ceiling he had thousands and thousands and thousands of records and so somehow my mother got the job of uh collating i don't know if that's the right word she she was supposed to fill out a little card for each one of these records. And all the cards were gonna go into this card catalog and that was gonna be Mr. Hyman's uh, system for locating all his, his <laughs> stuff. So, But the end result for me was that every week my mother would bring home six or eight or 10 or a dozen records, vinyl, uh, which she would then play in the house everybody would just kind of be walking around, and there would be, you know, Louis Armstrong on, or, or uh, Bucker White on, or Robert Johnson on, or King Creole on, or, I mean, it was just an amazing, it was just week after week after week, she was doing this, and filling out these little cards, and so, I was at the age then, where I just assumed that that's what music was. I didn't really know any other music. I didn't know that there was classical music. I didn't really know that there was rock and roll, or I just thought that what I was hearing was music because that's all I heard. And that was kind of my introduction to music was, you know, just a cavalcade of blues and early jazz stars. Um, And that went on for months that, that she did that. So if that didn't happen,
1: was there music being played at your house otherwise?
0: No, no. I was really the only musician uh, until my brother came along and he was actually a very fine singer, um, sang for most of his life. And then, but I, I actually be, be, became the only professional musician. My father was a professional actor and director and uh theater arts teacher for many years. So he was involved in the arts and, um, My mother actually was also a ceramicist, a potter, and uh, worked most of her life as a potter or pottery teacher.
1: So there was a certain artistic element in your family.
0: Oh, yeah, 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 completely, yeah.
1: Okay, so how did you get, I think your first instrument was the harmonica. How did you get into the harmonica?
0: That kind of happened when I was in high school and... um, some of my good buddies in high school, uh, Tom and Sam Clark, two brothers who I actually believe it or not, I'm still in touch with all these years. Uh, they were guitar players, piano players, singers, and they kind of started to put together a little band and they asked me if I wanted to be in the band. And I said, well, I don't really play anything. And they said, well, how about the harmonica? So I started playing the harmonica in this, in this band. And, um, we actually, believe it or not, recorded a record, which is probably by now completely impossible to find. That was called the Juke String Band Record. And we, we recorded this in probably 19... Oh, I, I, I guess I want to say 1965 or something. And we recorded it at what was actually a very famous studio in Beacon Hill in Boston where Joan Baez had recorded and a lot of other people, a lot of very important folk musicians had recorded there. What kind of music was it? So that was quite, it was kind of, it was kind of, I guess, you know, what what you might call Americana now, that term obviously nobody knew what that term was back then. There was a lot of blues on there. Um, There was a wonderful singer named Kim Brody who uh, a woman who sang very, very wonderfully well. And there was some harmony singing on there. And uh, it it just was kind of an eclectic record, uh, mostly covers of kind of older blues stuff. And um, honestly, I don't even still have a copy, uh, which is sad, but I, I do have a digital copy, so. Oh. Yeah.
1: So how old were you at this point?
0: Well, let's see. I, I, I started playing harmonica when I was about 12, 12 or 13. And uh, I, I just started picking up stuff from records that I that I had. I remember the first song that I worked on was Libba Cotton. Elizabeth Cotton uh, had, a, had a song called Freight Train, which was probably one of her best known mm-hmm. tunes. And I tried to learn it on the harmonica. She, of course, played guitar and sang, but I learned the melody on the harmonica. And then gradually people started to explain things to me about the harmonica and different positions that you could play in on, on it and stuff. And then I guess somewhere down the road there, I discovered Little Walter, uh, which is, you know, kind of like a beginning saxophone player discovering John Coltrane. It's like, okay, you know, now now what? <laughs> and but, but so I spent literally about two years coming home from school every day and just sitting down with the little the best of Little Walter record and learning everything I could I wore out one copy of that vinyl and I had to go buy another one it wouldn't even play anymore I played it so many thousands of times I can't imagine how
1: difficult that would be to
0: learn Little Walter just playing it by ear well (laughs) well, but I didn't know I mean I was just a, a kid I didn't know that I, Like I say, that I was sort of tackling one of the the greatest of all ever harmonica players. To me, it was just fantastic music that I loved. And, you know, it kind of came right out of that stream of stuff that my, my mother had, had been listening to that she had turned me on to. So. so the other thing is, from
1: what I know, Boston has a very vibrant music scene and it it also attracted a lot of great blues players to go through and play there all the time. And I, I presume that's the reason why there's so many great blues players in Boston.
0: Yeah, there was a, a, a very good music you know blues scene there for uh, much of the time, but I, I wasn't really connected to that. I, I went uh, to college, I left Boston and I went to college in Chicago at the University of Chicago. And honestly, the primary reason why I went there was because I wanted to go listen to blues every night in Chicago, (laughs) which, you know, so I I actually did that, not every night, but maybe a a couple, three nights a week for most of the time that I was there. Then I moved back to Boston when I um, was done. Well, actually, I was coming back to Boston in the summers, but I I more or less permanently moved back to Boston in 1972. And that's when I really kind of started to tap into the the blues scene in Boston. Um, I met uh, Johnny Nicholas and uh, David Maxwell and um, Ronnie Earl and uh, several other people. um, Sarah Brown, Uh, eventually we, we all kind of had a band together which uh, was called the Rhythm Rockers and then later Johnny Nicholas and the Rhythm Rockers and uh, Ron Levy was in that band also and uh so you know but we were also friends with other musicians in the in the community in Boston and that lasted for most of the 70s
1: What did you go to the University of Chicago? What were you majoring in?
0: Uh well I I ended up majoring in music. I, I thought I was going to be a history major, and I was a history major for about the first year. And then, you know, music was just kind of really taking over my life. And I, I thought, well, geez, there's, there's no reason why I wouldn't just be a music major. So, <laughs> I became a music major. Not, I mean, I, I have to say, I, I really was very, what's the right word, unknowledgeable about a lot of things in my life. I mean, I didn't realize that if you went to, you know, an academic music school that you, that nobody there would have heard of 99% of the music that you loved. (laughs) It was a whole different world. It was a completely different scene, completely different. And so I, you know, decided I was going to be a music major. And then as I was going along through there, I realized, wow, this is I mean, it's not that I didn't like it. It's just, it wasn't what I wanted to do in music. Was, it, so was I the I focus
1: did, more classical? or Oh yeah,
0: it, okay. totally classical. And, and yet I had a wonderful composition teacher, uh, Ralph Shapey, who was a marvelous composer. And uh, he taught me for a couple of years and he actually was a really big influence on me, although perhaps not in the way that he he thought he might be, but, but he was a street guy. And, you know, one of the few really street musicians that made it into academia. Um, he didn't come up through the ranks of academia. He wasn't a trained musician, but he was an extremely capable uh, composer and ran the the new music ensemble at the university of Chicago. And, you know, I have recollections, recollections of going to rehearsals with, you know, an eight or nine or 10 piece ensemble. And he would stop the band and say, Hey, you played a C sharp instead of a C, C, you know, in the, in the context of this very kind of <laughs> atonal, you know, and I was like, wow, how could he have heard that? You know, you know he was amazing. Ralph Shapey was amazing. He was a very cool guy.
1: And at this point, are you playing the harmonica in school or? Is yeah. This one? Okay. Yeah.
0: I, I was, uh, my freshman year, I used to play in my dorm room a lot and, um, one day I was playing, and um, somebody came along and, and said, uh, "Hey!" Uh, called up to me to my window. It was the spring, and the window was open. And I said, "Hey, you know, hey, you want to come down and play?" And I came down, and and uh, that actually ended up getting me into a band um, that Paul Asbell, who is my lifetime friend in music, who wonderful guitar player and composer and writer, band leader lives in burlington vermont now um that band had paul asbel in it and several other really good musicians in chicago so by then i but you know by the end of my freshman year i was already in a band and somehow became not only the harmonica player in that band but the singer in that band which never quite figured out how that happened but (laughs) (laughs) okay but at this point you haven't even picked up the saxes oh no 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 i i I didn't really even think about playing the saxophone until maybe like 1970 or 1971. I'd already been in school for three years or so. And then, you know, I was listening to a lot of music and a lot of the music that I was listening to was jazz. And I liked a lot of the saxophone stuff. And for some reason, I, again, you know, I, I I have to say I was, a lot of the decisions that i made i was really very clueless in my life and i wouldn't say ignorant but just you know so when, for some reason i thought that moving from the from the harmonica which had a reed to moving to the saxophone which had a reed would be a very smooth transition <laughs> N- totally no you know that was just not the case at all
1: <laughs> is there so, any connection in in the way that one would play
0: no Totally, totally no connection whatsoever. But, you know, like I say, in my sort of befuddled mind that there was, because they were both reed instruments, I thought, oh yeah, we will be a natural progression. So, you know, so anyway, I bought a saxophone. I bought a beautiful alto, a Selmer alto saxophone from and Healy Music in Chicago. I guess it must've been hmm, 1970 or 71. Uh, but I actually didn't even play it. But but at that point, I kind of knew that I might want to start playing it. Um, so the last year that I was in Chicago, maybe 71, 72, I did start playing that horn.
1: And how easy was that to learn that instrument?
0: Uh, not easy at all. I mean, you know, I had musical knowledge, right? I knew scales and I knew you know, melodies. And I had a very quick ear because I had never, uh, because I had grown up as an ear musician. Uh, I never really learned to read music. I mean, I I could read notes, but I mean, I'm talking about like sitting down and reading music on an instrument. I never did that until I was in my thirties. Wow! So, you know, that was kind of a weird thing to go to, you know, a music school and not really be able to read music. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like I say, there were a lot of things about my musical career that were sort of, if you look back on it, it was kind of baffling. But, you know, here I am.
1: So what at what point did, did you think, I want to be a musician? Like, by, by the time you went to school, did you think that music was a career option?
0: Yeah, I think by the time I got out of college, I, I was considering... That music would be at least a part of my life, but I also had interest in sort of the, some of the more academic sides of music, and so I decided I would enroll in Brandeis University in Boston. I moved back to Boston, in, in 1972, and I enrolled in Brandeis, and and I was kind of interested in electronic music and electronic composition and stuff like that, and they had the equipment there uh at brandeis i later found out that they didn't have anybody there who knew how to run it or even really cared very much about it and so i was kind of on my own there and and um so i i did that for a good part of a year and then we had a sort of a, a family uh terrible situation where my sister passed away and And honestly, I never went back to school after that. So,
1: um,
0: but you know, all that time that I was in at at Brandeis, I, I was still playing in bands. I had gotten into some bands in in the Boston area. And so I was, I was playing and I started playing with Johnny Nicholas and still do play with him sometimes to this day because he lives in Texas too. And, uh, I remember I was playing harmonica in that band. That was the Rhythm Rockers. And Johnny came up to me one night and he said, well, hey, man, I uh, I hear that you you have a saxophone. You play the saxophone. I said, well, honestly, I've only been playing it for a couple of months and I'm I'm really bad at it. And he said, well, he said, bring the horn down to the gig. By this time, I had acquired a tenor saxophone also. And he said, bring it down to the gig. And, and I said, well, I don't really, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't know what notes to play. and one of the more memorable things that anybody has ever said to me, Johnny said, just find one good note. <laughs> so honestly, that's sort of been my, thank you, Johnny, been my mantra for most of my life. Just find one good note, you know, the The, the sort of flip side of that is my, my alter ego, which is less is more. And, um, you know, it just became, I, I think because I was a harmonica player, First, you know, and sometimes, I mean, you don't have to play a lot of notes on the harmonica to make a a statement or, you know, to contribute or be a a strong player on the instrument. You don't have to play a lot of notes. And, of course, with the saxophone, there were people all around me who were playing a lot of notes on the saxophone. And that just kind of never was me. You know, I, I just never... I didn't go that way on the saxophone. I I always thought that the fewer notes that you played might be the better way to go. And so that sort of has been part of my musical ethos or or belief or whatever you want to call it all these years. How long did it take
1: for you to feel comfortable as a sax player?
0: I might in a couple of years. I mean, I mean, I'm comfortable now, but, but I mean, back then I was a total beginner. I mean, you have to understand, I didn't know, uh, you know, I had never taken a saxophone lesson. My first saxophone lesson, in fact, was kind of comic, uh, because I went to Rayburn Music in, in Boston and asked if there was any teachers and, and everybody assumed that I was a, a, a trained player, and I knew what I was doing, and they, they got me a lesson with this really, really far out jazz guy, I mean, a very, very, very good player, and I remember going over to his house in Revere Beach, and I brought my horn, and I literally had been playing the tenor for maybe three weeks or a month, and, you know, he was this old Italian guy, great player, and he said, oh, take your horn out of the case, I took my horn. I said, blow me a black play a little bit. Play some shit, man. And so I played, you know, in my own inimitable three week old style. And he looked at me and his eyes kind of bugged out of his head and he said, play some more. And I played some more. And he looked at me and he said, man, you into some deep shit. Where did you get that sound? (laughs) And I, I told, I, at, at that point, I thought, well, I better set the record straight. And I told him, I said, man, I've only been playing for three weeks. And he, he fell on the floor laughing. <laughs> he wasn't laughing at me, but he was laughing uncontrollably. He laughed for like five minutes. He was so funny. <laughs> he thought it was so hilarious that I had, you know, developed this crazy wild sound. And he was a kind of a well-known free jazz guy and, you know, really a monster player. So. Anyway, that was my first saxophone lesson.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Did you consider going into jazz?
0: That's a difficult question. I played jazz gigs for a lot of my life, especially after I moved to Austin. Um I I I started working on jazz tunes and learning jazz tunes, and I uh Started, I I, want, I began to teach myself how to read music, because I had, like I said before, I had never really properly learned how to read music, and and I got into a, a jazz band, a, a big band, that were, the guys were very nice to me and very lenient and allowed me to sort of, you know, play in the band, even though I was really struggling with the reading aspect of it. Uh, But I worked on it. I worked on it hard. I worked on it for an hour or two or three a day, just working on reading and improving my sound on the horn and stuff like that. So, um, after a while, I started a group actually with Denny Freeman, a wonderful guitar player from Austin who passed away, unfortunately, a few months ago. And we started a group called Kaz Jazz. And I I kept that group together for years. And, um, we, you know, we played a lot of old standards and swing stuff, and jump stuff, and stuff that I wrote. Um, it wasn't, you know, earth-shaking modern jazz or anything like that. But it was, it was fun and it was cool. And we had a few gigs, and you know, played parties and weddings and clubs and stuff like that. And, you know, it was cool.
1: Did you ever think about going into free-form jazz?
0: No, no, <laughs> I never thought about that. That never was my bag. Uh, I, you know, I was always a kind of an old school player uh, and I have to say now, you know, at this point in my life, I, I, I don't really consider myself a jazz player. I mean, I still play with a big band here in Austin, although we have been, you know, uh, on hiatus now for two years or more, but I play with a band called the Austin Jazz Band, which is a big band. And I'm good in that band because I I can read, finally, I you know, finally can sit down and read a, a big band chart through beginning to end without making too many mistakes. And And I love playing in that band. It's really exciting. And we play a lot of new material and a lot of old material. And it's really cool. So that honestly is about the extent of my being a jazz musician these days. I don't do a lot of jazz gigs anymore. Most of my work is is blues work.
1: If we go back to Chicago, speaking of blues, and the time that you spent at college and and the nights that you would go out and see the blues musicians, the greats, can you just share some of those experiences with me and what that might have meant to you as a young musician seeing Muddy Waters?
0: Yeah, I mean, there were so many great players that we went out to hear uh you know probably the one that i loved the most was magic sam and we 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 got to hear magic sam a lot he used to play at this club called the lna lounge which was on the near west side of chicago not not far from the loop not too far from downtown And uh, we would go there maybe a couple of times a month to hear Sam before he passed away. And uh, that was wonderful. I got to hear Wolf a bunch of times at Silvio's. Um, But there were a lot of other clubs that we we went to Teresa's a lot and heard, you know, Buddy Guy and Lefty Diz and um, Hubert Sumlin. And, you know, there were just a lot of different places that we went to hear music and you know it was all stuff that i loved some of the clubs were difficult um we we went to pepper's lounge a lot and pepper's lounge was a scary place to be you know so um you know i don't know there were so many different clubs that we went to i wouldn't even know where to start wolf was always incredible performer I I I was very thankful to be able to be in Chicago at sort of the the tail end of that last generation of great black blues musicians that you know grew up or or moved to Chicago from the south and you know they they just I just absorbed so much from what they did you know it was it was a huge part of my life really to be able to experience all of that
1: and did you think this is what i want to do at that point
0: yeah i think i was coming around to to thinking that i mean i i i don't think i really understood what it would be like to be a musician um because i really didn't have much to go on you know that in terms of that way but um Later, I got to be friends with big Walter Horton, and uh, he he kind of was a mentor to me in a way in terms of how to live as a musician and, you know, how you carry yourself and what you do and how to practice and stuff like that. Wow. That
1: must have been a very valuable lesson.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Walter was an amazing, amazing human being. <laughs>
1: What made you decide to move to Austin?
0: Well, in so in the '70s, I was in a band, as I mentioned, the Rhythm Rockers, with uh, Johnny Nicholas and uh, Sarah Brown, and at that point, Ronnie Earl was playing guitar too, and um, we uh, we went to we went we went on a little shoestring tour down through Charlotte and Atlanta and New Orleans and Lafayette and ended up in Austin. This was in 1978 in the spring. And we ended up in Austin. That had been our goal to to end up in Austin and, and uh, open gigs, uh, do opening uh, slot gigs for Asleep at the Wheel and the Thunderbirds and other people in Austin. And so we actually spent if I remember correctly, about two and a half months sleeping on people's couches in Austin in the spring of 1978. And I loved it. I mean, I just, I loved Austin. I thought it was just an amazing place. And the music scene was so cool. And there were so many great musicians. And I had already met the Thunderbirds at that point in in Boston, they'd come up to play several times. And so they were kind of buddies of mine. And of course Jimmy and I are still good friends but you know the, the 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 whole scene in Austin seemed like such a cool thing I decided I I would kind of think about or work on mo- moving to Austin at some point and that didn't happen right away because I was actually working with Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones in the Boston area for 79 and 80 and and part of 81 Johnny Nicholas had by that time moved himself to Texas. So the Rhythm Rockers kind of fell apart. And um, 1981, um, Franny Christina, who had been the original Rhythm Rockers drummer, called me and he said, hey, you know, Marsha Ball is looking for a sax player in Austin. One thing led to another and I, Got the gig with Marsha and moved to Austin. Just packed up my car and drove down here. That was uh, right around the winter of 81, 82. At this point, how much
1: harmonica playing are you doing and how much of it is sax?
0: It was a a lot of both. Um, I didn't play harmonica that much with Marsha, but right after I moved to Austin, I met Angela Straley and I started playing at Antone's a lot in the house band. I almost right away, Clifford heard who I was and Clifford Antone, that is, the uh, the well, the owner of, of Antone's. And, you know, he was very, very welcoming to me and very generous and and uh, very friendly and, you know, immediately invited me down to the club. And so I started on my off nights with Marcia. I, was playing in the house band very quickly in Austin and also playing with Angela Straley in her band and playing with Angela, I was really doing a lot of both. I was playing harp and sax both.
1: And is it around this time that you started working with Blacktop
0: Records? It was shortly after that, yeah. I had been playing in New Orleans with Marsha because of course that was kind of outside of Central Texas. That was her main market really was the New Orleans area. And we went there from Mardi Gras, went there one, pretty much once a month to play, you know, Tipitinas or or wherever. And so I met uh, Hammond Scott and Norman Scott pretty early in the game there. When I was playing with Marsha, they would come out to the gigs. And when Hammond and Norman Scott decided to put Blacktop Records together, they got in touch with me to see if I wanted to do some recording sessions Um, They had already done a couple of sessions, but then we did the Wild Wild Kingdom record with Ron Levy. Ronnie Earl was playing on that and and, uh, a lot of other wonderful musicians with a great record. And then, you know, I started playing with uh, sessions with Anson, Funderburg. And, you know, before I knew it, coming into the mid 80s there, I was flying to New Orleans almost every month to do a session for with, with with Blacktop Records for Hammond and Norman Scott.
1: I presume by this time, you're pretty comfortable
0: on the saxophone, right? <sighs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I look back at, at that era of the 80s and, you know, it, it was the golden era, really. I mean, I was playing with literally dozens of different blues and rhythm and blues and sometimes jazz stars at Antones. We were the house band. So, you know, we were backing up every week, every weekend, different great players from Albert Collins on down. And I was doing the blacktop sessions and I was working with Angela and I had Kaz Jazz going on. And I mean, it was a a marvelous time for me to be a player um, and you know, I, I sometimes I get to hear back things that I played back then, like in the studio, or and I mean, I was pretty good back then. You know, I mean, I I I, I wasn't a bad sax player uh, in that in the the genre that I loved, which was blues and rhythm and blues and jump swing stuff.
1: What do you think it is about you that? got you all these opportunities to work with so many different musicians to be on so many records. What quality do you possess that that might have made you?
0: Well, I don't think it was any one quality. But i but but one thing I can mention is that I have and I mentioned this before a very quick ear. So somebody can start a song. And I mean, I'm on top of it. I just know, you know, what to do, and I sometimes know where the song is going, and if I don't know where it's going, if I hear one verse or one chorus through, I know what it is. I know what the chord changes are, and I know what's going on, and I have a good idea of what to contribute, and that later, that ability later became one of the things that was very special about the Texas Horns, is that not only was I able to do that, even playing with musicians that we had never met or never, sometimes never even really heard before, not only was I able to to contribute that right away, but Al and John in the Texas Horns were able to pick up on that instantly and create a horn section sound out of that. So, you know, I'd, I'd have to say that was kind of, one thing that I was special at. I think the other thing that I was special at is that I I mentioned this before, I never really wanted to play a lot of notes and I, and so consequently, I didn't overplay. And so I think a lot of musicians, especially the older, sometimes mostly black musicians, when they heard me play, they thought I was right. For the music because i didn't I didn't treat the music as just my own personal ah, you know vehicle right. to just blow you know for whatever I wanted to do, rather, I was more interested in complementing the music and being a part of the music on its own terms um, and I think I did that pretty well and i I still do that I mean that's still what I do and so it was less kind of about you know me. Showing off my technique, which there wasn't a whole lot to show off anyway in most of my life, but it wasn't about that for me. It never really was about that. It was much more about creating the song, creating a a piece of music, complementing what the guitar player was doing, complementing what the vocalist was doing, what the piano player was doing, and kind of fitting in with something.
1: So where does one get that, that ability to know when you hear a song for the first time to know what parts to play, what you can do to add to the song. Is that from your musical training? Is that from your musical it, listening? It's,
0: it's not from my musical training in academia, because they, they they basically are clueless about improvisation. I mean, what we're talking about is being able to improvise. In other words, in all those situations that we, we have been talking about, except for the big band situation there was never any music in front of me i wasn't playing for music you know okay so that's the
1: part that i but well, that's the part that i don't get so the texas horn i believe was kind of born out of your work with the ottawa blues festival is that correct
0: we actually that was our first kick right yeah, we we put the texas horns together because i had played the ottawa blues festival with colin james And the bunch of the board members, we were hanging out one day and drinking and eating and having a ball. And somebody called me in the winter, uh, Connor Grimes, who was on the board at that time. And he said, hey, how can we get you back up here? And I said, I told him, I said, well, I'm kind of thinking about putting a horn section together. And he said, let's book it. And so that was kind of the impetus for us to to create the, the, the horn section so that we could go play the Ottawa Blues festival as the resident horn section for the festival (laughs) okay so
1: i don't understand how i don't understand how a horn section works but the fact that you could go on stage and i said i told you that i remember seeing you come on stage with mel brown yeah the home records yeah and you just i don't think you guys rehearsed you just come on and play with them and then i can see one person knowing what to do but for all three to know and function as a horn section How does that happen?
0: Um, For many years, it happened because I knew what to do. So in other words, for example, playing with Mel Brown, well, geez, I played with Mel Brown for five, six, seven years in the house band at Antone's. I knew a lot of his tunes, even tunes that we would never played before. I knew what he was going to do. And so when we first started out with the Texas horns, a lot of what we ended up playing on the song would would come from me. But that's only a very small part of the explanation because the reality was that Al and John, well, Al joined a little bit later, but we, they, they were so good at hearing what I was doing and finding their appropriate parts to fit in with the the line or lick or idea that I had. It was amazing, actually, that it happened so quickly and so magically, you know, to where people would look at us at the end of a song and and say, well, how did you come up with all those horn parts voiced out and ready to go in a three-piece horn section with no music in front of you? And I mean, I just would tell people, that's what we do. You know, that's what we've always done. We always had that ability because I think, like me, the other guys in the Texas Horns are ear players. Now, John Mills and, and Al, too, are magnificent readers, better readers than I, and writers. But they also were always, always ear players, first and foremost. They always could hear and create really quickly. So just you you start playing and they know where to go. Yep. Yep, they know what to do. They hear me play a little lick. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll just whisper something in their ear or, or make a little hand signal sometimes because there's certain things that we do, you know, in certain situations where, you know, we'll, we'll play a certain kind of thing and just little things that I do with my horn might be a, a clue, a cue to them for, for what to do um, it's, it's kind of magical, you know, I have to say it's mysterious, but, but anyway, the point I was going to make is that now it's kind of gotten to be a little bit more reciprocal. So like John will come up with an idea or Al will come up with an idea and I'll adapt to that the same way that they had been adapting to me. So it's gotten to be much more of a mutual thing. And then of course, when we started recording as the Texas horns, you know, different people would come up with different ideas and different songs and stuff like that. And that that's when it really became sort of even more of a cooperative effort, I think, between the three of us.
1: Is this unusual? Like,
0: I would imagine that not many horn sections work. this way. I don't know of any other horn horns. I mean, most horn sections are horn sections because they read. Right. Right. I mean, and right. And we do read and we do write. And you know, I was working on some songs the other day and I wrote charts for that. That's another thing that I taught myself in, in my 30s. Uh, John and Al are both terrific arrangers and can write stuff for weeks, you know, and so we're good at, that, at doing that now. But what our sound really is, our blend and our sound really comes from us just playing together without music in front of us for years. And so we're very lucky that way, actually. I I don't know, I mean, certainly the Memphis Horns were like that, not to put us in even a close category with them. I mean, they're my idols in a lot of ways, but, you know, you're right. it, It was kind of a unique, what we did and still do is kind of a unique thing. And we were lucky because we were given the opportunity by the people at the Ottawa Blues Festival, by uh antones by the house band thing you know to do that kind of stuff where we didn't have music in front of us and what we played was what came out of our horns um i should mention
1: that there is a bird in your in your room oh yeah tell
0: me me a little bit about that because we we are hearing it yeah is is zan I, i i have it a little bit tuned out but that's my bird zan
1: what kind of bird is it? A parakeet. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. yeah, my neighbors, for a short time, were breeding parakeets, and and I ended up with one. So <laughs> <laughs> they live for a long time, right? Uh yeah, yeah. I think they do live for years. Yeah.
1: Okay, so if I'm not mistaken, you also taught school.
0: I did. Yeah. I don't know I, if you still I, do or not, but I um got married in 1988 and had a daughter. And then I got divorced several years later. And then I got remarried and had two more children, a daughter and a son with my second wife. And so all of a sudden I had a family and, um, I, I was happy as a, as a working musician. And, um, but I also, uh, had started teaching some saxophone lessons at a school here in Austin called St. Stephen's Episcopal School, St. Stephen's School. Very good private high school. And um, after, oh, I don't know, two or three years of teaching maybe one or two days a week saxophone lessons, um, the head of the fine arts department said, hey, would I consider becoming a full-time teacher there? And I actually initially said no, because I, like I say, I was pretty happy as a full-time musician. But the more I thought about it, and especially when I started thinking that my children would be able to go to this school basically free of charge, it being a fairly expensive private school, you know, I thought, wow, maybe I should reconsider this teaching thing. So um, I said, I finally said, okay. And and started teaching there full-time. And my oldest daughter, the first year that I taught full-time, entered the sixth grade and went through St. Stephen's all the way through. And then my younger daughter, Lily, and my son, Aaron, also followed suit and, and went to school there. So I ended up teaching there for 25 years. Wow. So what did teaching give you?
1: What did it do for you as a as a person, as a musician?
0: Well... A lot of different things. I mean, um, it it forced me to uh, figure out what I do and also to figure out what I think is important. Because if you're going to stand up there in, in front of a bunch of teenagers, you know, you got to have, you got to be able to tell them something, right? They want to know where you're coming from, right? Like, what do you think is important? Why, why do you care about music? Or why should they care about music, right? And so I eventually found out that a lot of what I was good at, I could do there. So I started teaching music theory. And that was, one, that was a great experience for me. I eventually became a very good, I think, a very good music theory teacher. And I started the jazz band there because I had had, by that point, a fair amount of experience playing in in big bands in Austin. And uh, of course, I, by that time, was teaching saxophone. So that kind of came naturally. But I also started a course in the history department there about um, what I ended up calling American Soul, which was basically about Black music in in the United States, going back to slavery times and so covered a lot of blues and jazz and the the singers from the 20s and bebop and swing era and up until just about when rock and roll hit in, in the late 40s and, and 50s. And that's when the course ended. So I learned a huge amount from teaching that course. I, I acquired and read a lot of books on the subject and subjects and and it was really a a great experience for me i mean i have to say that i got pretty much i got about as much out of teaching as i as i think my students got out of my being a teacher (laughs) so i was lucky you know
1: are you still teaching
0: no okay no i i've had several offers to teach and i actually did teach a, a little online music theory class Uh, But that was with Zoom, and honestly, I didn't really care for Zoom that much as a teacher, and um, I I, I finally just said, you know, I I think my teaching days are behind me. But I wouldn't be surprised if that changes, if something comes along that's, you know, pretty cool or challenging, I might want to do it. But for now, no. Well, if you did it for 20 plus years, you obviously did enjoy it, right? Uh, Yeah, oh yeah, I really did. I loved working with with the kids. Um, I found it very natural. And uh, I I really enjoyed the company of the kids and some of the the other faculty and occasionally parents that were associated with school.
1: So I wonder, like when I think of you and partly because of the Texas horns, I think of Texas, but obviously you didn't start off in Texas. You, You moved to Austin and and took some time to make a name for yourself, but there was a lot of artists that you've worked with, like Marcia Ball, like many artists in in Texas that that one connects with you. Um, When did Texas become home to you? When did it feel like you were a Texas musician?
0: Well, my joke about that is that, you know, when you've lived in Texas for 50 years, they'll allow you to be buried there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I, I still have another what uh nine years to go <laughs> but no I, I think I I think I I, I the, the longer I lived in Austin the more it was clear to me that I really loved Texas and I I really wanted to be in Austin and I didn't want to go anywhere else um for a while I I entertained the idea that after I retired from teaching at St. Stephen's, I might move back up to Boston. Um, my parents had passed away and, and they left me their condo up there. And I kind of thought that I might want to move back up there, but nah, you know, I don't want to anymore.
1: And, and, so. and musically, like, like we, we were talking about the fact that Boston is a very musical city, we spent some time in Chicago and Austin is obviously a very musical city. Can you talk about how each one of them has influenced you and made you who you are?
0: Well, I think Chicago mainly was just such an education for me. I, there's no substitute for going out and hearing music two or three nights a week. I mean, that was just such a treat. And and I I, I just got so much of that in my head not even in a way that I could really verbalize it, but it just became part of who I was that I was able to listen to so many great musicians in Chicago and sometimes get to know them a little bit and, and enjoy their company and enjoy their music. And I had so much respect for what they did. Um, it, It was an education, but it was an education unlike going to school. It wasn't like academic and academic education it was just kind of being there and listening to that music night after night after night and getting to know the players and and also just getting getting to see what what the social reality of blues music was in Chicago it was black clubs with a sprinkling of white people in there and, you know, we would go to the L&A Lounge on a Friday night to hear Magic Sam. And, you know, we might be the only two white people, my buddy Clyde and I, or whoever I went down there with, might be the only two white people in the room, or maybe there'd be two or three or four others. And, and yet it was a really cool scene and by and large a very friendly scene. And just to see what what the music meant to the people that came into that club Weekend after weekend or night after night or whatever, that was, that was what really was an education for me to see what the role of the music was in their lives. And then I realized that, I mean, now I'm that role in people's lives now, whether they're white or black, it doesn't matter, you know.
1: You have produced a number of artists, including a few who come from outside of the United States. I think you've you worked with a Finnish singer. You've worked with Australian musicians. Yeah. Is their perception of the blues from coming from out of the States, is it any different? Does, does anything about their perception of the blues that surprises you?
0: Um, I think with when I produced Ina Forsman's two CDs, I think I... What was striking about her was that she 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 was attracted to and learned blues very, very quickly. And it was a huge part of her life, but she also was listening to, uh, I don't know, is pop singers the right word? Popular singers, right. you know? And so it was kind of an education for me to see how within her life and her thinking and her musicality blues and uh, like a pop singer or a, an alternative rock singer or something, there wasn't a a kind of antagonism between those two things. Whereas for me, there might've been, you know, and that was cool. Mm -hmm. That was really cool. Um, But anyway, you know, you, 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 if you're lucky, you learn as much from the, people that you produce as you, as you, as they get from you.
1: <laughs> um, I'm going to wrap this up, but let me ask you one final question. Tell me about this amazing journey that wasn't really planned, that had no goals set at the very beginning. Tell me how, when you look back on it, how do you, how do you look back on this
0: amazing musical journey? Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot, I have, I feel a lot of, I don't know if gratitude is the right word, but I just, I'm I'm happy that I was able to be a blues musician for so many years. I mean, I've seen friends of mine give it up. I've seen friends of mine die, pass away, move away. Uh, And, you know, that I can still be playing blues at my age and producing it and writing songs that are very blues influenced or rootsy influenced it's pretty cool you know that i've been able to do that all these years i never was very ambitious as a musician you know in other words i didn't see myself playing with the rolling stones or with tower of power or with some big jazz you know that that, that never was I never had the ambition to do those things. What I had the ambition to do was to show up and play my gig, my blues gigs night after night, week after week. Um, the other night I played with Marsha ball and, you know, I hadn't played with her in several years and we played a three hour gig and I loved it. I mean, it was so much fun to play with Marsha again. And, you know, when you're, when you're involved in blues music, it, it's really not that big of a world, you know? I mean, it's not like rock and roll or or classical music or whatever, where there's thousands and thousands of people doing it or wanting to do it, or blues is a much, much smaller community. And that's been kind of cool over the years to, you know, I'm still playing with Jimmy Vaughn after first playing with them when he was with the Thunderbirds in like 1974 or 75, right? You know. It's like you keep coming across the same people, and yet there's new younger people who, who come in. And that was one of the cool things about being part of the Antones family or house band is that younger Clifford was, you know, shepherding along younger musicians, the, the Moeller brothers, the Keller brothers, um, Sue Foley, and so on. You know, it was amazing to, and I'm still playing with a lot of those people too. So that's an amazing thing. It, it's, it's a very special family because everybody is dedicated and loves playing blues. They're dedicated to it and they love it. And so that's what they want to do. And they're going to find ways to do it and people to do it with. And it's pretty cool. It's cool that you've done like hundreds of albums, right? Like you've been- Yeah, I lost I lost count. <laughs> I did. I really lost count. I don't know how many. Just
1: imagine if you had ambition,
0: what would have happened? <laughs> Yeah, right. I probably would have blown it somewhere along the way. Who knows? Kaz, this has been
1: really special. Thank you so much for taking this time.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Very nice to meet you, and uh, hopefully, I'll see you up in Canada again in a year or two. That would be good. All right, thank you.